Let's be seated and let's pray together. Father, thanks uh, to allow us to gather. We are the called out ones who are called together for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a testament to your love and your grace and to be an inclusive body. A body that reaches out and embraces through grace and mercy. Help us and empower us to be your love, your arms, your feet, your wisdom in a world that so desperately needs love and mercy, grace and forgiveness. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Chris, thanks very much indeed. Um, my second opportunity to speak to you during uh, summertime. And um, we're speaking, and it's interesting to watch the journey go. Because it was interesting, before Christians were called Christians, we were called Hehodos, which was the way. And that's the idea of a journey. And although heaven is probably one of the most significantly talked about topics in the whole of the New Testament, Jesus never really talked about it as a destination, and we've got to sort of give everything up here to get there. In other words, let's just get to the finishing tape, because that means we miss the journey. And, you know, sometimes if you're driving, um, you're driving and you suddenly realize you're a mile down the road and you can't remember what happened the last mile. Have you ever, has that happened to you? You're in church. You'll be struck down if you don't put your hand up. Has that happened to you? You see, it has happened. And the thing is, you think, what happened? What did I miss? I went on overdrive and you missed the journey. Or someone says to you, if you're on a bus or a train, did you see that? And it was, you missed it entirely and you would love to go back and recapture the moment and the problem isn't life isn't like that you can't put it on hold so if you don't remember anything else today remember that the christian journey is the way and remember i again talked about it as a la santerre we're sauntering we're on the way to the holy ground so sometimes the saunter seems a bit difficult and sometimes we would just love a hug like brown rabbit I actually saw a brown rabbit there on Wednesday week, I think, on the cairn, and I wondered, what was a rabbit doing on top? And I never even thought of sending anybody. I wonder how many people have had that sort of encounter. You suddenly feel bedraggled and wet and put to one side and forgotten about, and it's dark, and you're not sure, and you would just love a hug. And I know, I don't know about you guys, but I have missed during the last 18 months hugging. Even people that are, might be unhuggable, if that's an English word, it should be if it's not. You know, you just love to sort of say... Funerals, places where people have lost, people who have been watching loved ones, whether they're weddings or happy days or holy days, and they're only doing it virtually. Now, thank God for virtual um, technology, but a hug just means so much. For another day, look through Scripture and find out how many times Jesus touched people that he didn't have to. He touched dead people. He touched, if you remember the widow, and her son was dead. He touched the actual, um, the beer that he was being carried on. The man who was blind, he moistened mud and rubbed his eyes. He didn't need to do it, but he did. The person who was suffering from leprosy, he touched them. And if you're a blind person, put to one side, and suddenly you feel the hand of someone touching you, can you imagine what that embrace sounds like? So sometimes on a Sunday, we listen for 15 or 20 minutes, and it's all theology stuff. But if that's where it stops, you're not on the journey. You're rushing to the destination. The journey is actually the struggle. It's the white noise. It's the turbulence. It's living in this ambiguity. 
that we're not quite sure. And that's the purpose of what I want to say to you today. It's the next stage of the taking the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth that we've been listening to. Johnny spoke last week about a member of his own family who felt excluded because in his case of a sexual orientation. And that's just one example. I can think right back in my own life of women who felt excluded. And whether that was in work because they got married and they had to leave their work because that's what you did. Or whether it was a person of color and they were excluded because of their color or a person in a wheelchair or not in a wheelchair with an invisible disability who was marginalized because of that. Because I don't think that when we think of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, this is simply a geographical text. And I think the church too often has taken this geographically. The ends of the earth are the great unwashed, those who are untouched, the people on the margins. On that lovely map, there be monsters here when you don't know what lies beyond the end. When you look out at the horizon and you think if you got there, you might drop off. You know, sometimes as a church, we draw our horizons too close. And we don't know what's on the other side. And we're afraid to go there because we're not sure what our theology is going to do if it meets that thing. I remember Larry Norman way back in the 60s wrote a song, said if there's life on other planets, you bet your life he, God knows. And he sent his son to die for them already. So he was encompassing the fact that, well, you know, even if earth isn't the only place we find with life, it doesn't knock Genesis. Because my faith's big enough to embrace doubt. So who's your ends of the earth? The timeline in church growth, just as Jesus died, and that was about somewhere around 30 AD, let's talk it. There was the ascension, there was Pentecost. Peter begins his ministry, and then Peter and John are very quickly arrested. And then we know that Ananias and Sapphira, who basically didn't quite understand what the journey was about, and I, I find that a really hard text to explain, that we somehow rejoice in the death of someone, but that's the, when we get to heaven and I'm going to ask Paul, what was all that about? And then the thing is, in heaven, I won't need the answers. And that's so frustrating because I really would like to get him at the door of heaven to find out what was going on. That's me. I'm sad. So Act 6 finishes. The word of God increased and the number of uh, the disciples multiplied greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. Then we have 32 to 34 AD. And what happened then is Stephen, if you remember, stoned. And the only time in the whole New Testament where Jesus isn't seated at the right hand of his father happens, Jesus stands to receive Stephen into heaven. Wouldn't that have been a lovely vision to have when you're looking up into heaven and the Son of God standing with his arms in an embrace to welcome you? We then have Saul persecuting the church. I spoke again a couple of weeks back about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was someone who obviously came from Ethiopia. He might have been a proselyte to Judaism. We don't know. But he was Judea, Samaria and moving towards the ends of the earth. We then have Saul's conversion and becoming Paul. And we have Peter's vision, if you remember. He sees this cloth coming down and he's told, nothing's unclean that I've made. So that was beginning of God opening the eyes, putting the telescope on and saying, do you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and this chronology is wrong. Because rather than having this notion of here to there, we're all one. We're, we're in landscape rather than portrait. You know, we should be embracing everyone. And therefore, Acts 9 says the church had rest through all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So all that's left here is the ends of the earth. This is the reading. The apostles and believers through Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, 
You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven and the four corners it came down to where I was. I looked into it and I saw four-footed animals, wild beasts, reptiles, birds. And then I heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. If I were him as a Jew, I would have flipped at that point. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. He didn't listen first and second time. Remember Peter, the denial three times? And then the sheet was pulled up. Right then, three men, there's that number again. Three men had been sent to me from Caesarea. They stopped at the house where I was staying. God's Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers went with me and we entered the men's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send a Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He will bring you the message which you and your household will be saved. This is Peter still. And as I speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, that's the household of Cornelius, and as it was from the beginning. Then I remembered what God had said. God, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, that's the, that's the circumcised Jew, Jewish Christians. When they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what was the issue? The issue is they had God in a box. They stuck God in a box. The apostles and the believers through Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God and they freaked because this wasn't in the script. This wasn't how things should be. This was God breaking out of a box and he shouldn't do that because then we lose control. So Peter goes up to Jerusalem it's not he got an email being summoned. He went on his own accord to try to explain what had happened. He wanted to share his experience. And when he arrived there, you could just imagine if it was a director's cut, you would hear the music almost like the shark approaching in Jaws. And poor, Paul, uh, poor Peter walks into this room and all of them are circumcised believers. Now that means that they were Jewish from background and they'd converted to Christianity. And this was their allegation. You ate with uncircumcised men. Now, this wasn't did you. This was a statement of fact. This was guilty as charged. So the Jewish Christians had real problems with this because in their view, God brought the Jewish people in who were never really out anyway. This was just Messianic Judaism. This was the fulfillment of Judaism. They could get that. Didn't turn around all their Jewish theology. Gentiles? This is too freaky. And you are guilty by association because you ate with these people. Now, why was their response like that? Because they had a particular view of orthodoxy. This is how things have always been done. They had one view of God and God's love, and it certainly wasn't for the Gentiles and for women or for the unclean. They had this binary approach to truth. If you're right, I'm wrong. And therefore, there were no shades of gray in this. And you can see, therefore, when they entered into debate, it was actually an argument because they judged the success of their encounter by whether they won or lost, not by whether they learned from the other one. 
And you know, as a church body and as Christians, often when we say we're discussing, we're not, we're arguing. Because a discussion means we're listening. A discussion means we're coming away. And winning a discussion isn't actually in the lexicon. You don't win discussions. You have discussions. You win arguments. So I think before we engage in discussion or dialogue, let's try to think about what are the lines of engagement. Am I here to learn? Do I want to leave here knowing more about God, about faith than when I joined? Or am I here to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong? In other words, break the binary mold. There wasn't any room in this Jewish Christian thinking for questions. Bishop Holloway lost faith towards the end of his life and he wrote a book called Leaving Alexandria. And in it he said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Where you have certainty, you don't need faith. If I could prove to you Jesus died for me, you wouldn't need to believe me. It would be proved. So faith has no place at the door when certainty presents itself. 2 plus 2 equals 4. I can empirically prove that to you. You don't need faith to believe that. Paul Tillich, another Christian theologian, said, Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's actually an element of faith. So I guess what I'm suggesting here, now this isn't about doubting God's existence, although there may be real dark nights of the soul where you might feel that, and you might judge yourself unworthy because of that. But you look at the saints of the Old and New Testament, they all had similar nights. Martin Luther threw a paint pot at the wall when he thought he saw Lucifer one evening as he was going through his conversion experience. It is perfectly okay to accept doubt. And therefore, when these Jewish Christians encountered this thing that happened to Gentiles, it made them doubt their faith because they argued the slippery slope. How often have you heard that? <clears throat> if that happens, then this is going to happen. If we give them that, then this will happen. And that's I understand why in some cases that might be the case, but that denies any possibility of progress. It denies any possibility that we might just have, a, have only a pale reflection of what truth might be or what God wants us to do. How did Peter respond to all of this? He didn't turn up with a theological treatise. He said, listen to my story. Listen to my testimony. I had a vision. Do we really believe that God can speak into our life? Peter was a convinced Jewish Christian who came up with the 16, 613 precepts of the law, didn't think that the Gentiles had a place, but God intervened through a vision and stopped him in his tracks. He then heard the prompting of God's spirit. I guess I'm saying, are we so hung up on theology? Are we so hung up on being right that if something raises a doubt are we just saying, let's close that down, let's not even go there, let's not even expand our horizon by having that conversation? Because Peter, if he'd done that, would never have gone up to Jerusalem, would never have been willing to take the gospel to the exiles and to those beyond, such as the Gentiles. He then said, if God gave them, that's the Gentiles, the game gift as me, how can that gift be different for them? If it saved me, can I not save them? So he began to use logic back to these circumcised Jewish Christians. And then he brought it down to humanity. He said, who am I to think I'm standing in the way of God? So he went up, he said, listen to my story, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell you that theologically, faith, if it works for me, must work for them. And if it is true, who am I to block God? And you can see by a different series of arguments, they were convinced. And that, that is because, for me, they gave him the gift of being listened to. 
And you know, when we're in engagement as a church, looking about inclusion, how often are we waiting and our silence is simply frustration waiting to jump in and say the next thing we want to say? Rather than silence being a positive contributor to the debate. Because silence is often pushing the pause button and speaking. That's not what happened here. This was godly, spirit-filled silence. This was engagement. This was listening. This was trying to say, let me hear, let me test this out, let me see if this is authentic. And once the penny dropped, what did they say? They praised God. Because that's the only response, isn't it, to the grace and mercy of God. When you see something happens before your eyes, when you see the life of someone change and you hear their testimony, theologically then it's presented that I can't be in the way of God. So even if the Gentiles has been, have been granted resistant repentance that leads to life, we're in with it. <laughs> but this wasn't new. If you remember, way back in the Old Testament, there were Eli, do you remember and Phineas? There were the two sons, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas. They were the guardians of the ark. And they were about a bit of trading, you know, and doing stuff on the side. But one day, they went into battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines took the ark away. They had such a strange view of God, they thought God was taken. Because God was in the box. And what happened is they were routed. They were absolutely destroyed. And then they went back. They were dispirited. They actually died. And the whole of the Jewish nation felt that this is over. God's been stolen. Now... The Jewish Christians would have been aware of that and the stupidity of God being put in a box, yet they held on to it. Now, why did they hold on to it? If you add to that the fact they'd heard about the witness and ministry of Jesus, who, if he did anything, was he broke taboos. He went into public places. He interacted with the marginalized. Luke's gospel is full of Jesus' encounter with the other, with women, with people suffering from leprosy, with Romans, with Gentiles, with people beyond the pale. And on every occasion, Jesus doesn't do it just to put something up there and say, look how great I am. He's putting it out to say, look what I'm doing. Respond to my actions and see what the embrace of God can really be. Take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But despite all of this, the Jewish Christians, and I would argue sometimes we today, have a problem that God just might love everybody. Because if that happens, all the received orthodoxy we have, all the stuff we've learned, all the stuff we believe in, we might just have to shake up a bit. It also then challenges the structures of power. In those days, it would have been the males who led down the theology. And once this happened and the Gentiles got hold of faith, where were we going to go next? Where was that body of stuff that we call orthodoxy going to go? It also then injected doubt into faith. And that, in the Jewish mind, shouldn't have been there. If anything, God was predictable. You know, the 613 precepts of the law taught me what I could do in every day, how I engaged with people. It was like my, my map for life, and there was no room for sauntering. There was no room for moving off piste. So if we allow God to break the mold here, we have lost control, and we need to be in control. And yet what they couldn't understand was only four years after Jesus died, theology wasn't worked out. I would argue 2,000 years later, we're still trying to make an understanding of some of our theology. Now, in case you think this is all idealistic, in my lifetime, things that the Christian church has held to be true have changed. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I was studying theology way back in the 80s, I did a thesis on the, on the gospel, quote, and social action, because I was told there were two different things. 
that you evangelize, and if you couldn't do anything else, you give somebody a, you know, bread or a fish. Now, most people now don't believe that. 35 years ago, that was commonly held view. The liturgy in the prayer book, how we worship in church, the role of women. I grew up in an Anglican church where there was never any chance of a woman being a minister, let alone a bishop. Look how our church has changed. Look how our theology has changed. Same Bible, the same Jesus, but how we apply it has changed. And we are not diminished. We have not lost control as a result. We look at what happened in the apartheid era with the Dutch Reformed Church justifying apartheid. They would not believe that nowadays. We think about divorce and remarriage. When I was growing up, that was anathema. Now we have ordained ministers, males and females, not only divorced but remarried. The same Bible, the same body of knowledge, but we apply it differently and we're not diminished. The view of the Catholic Church. For me, I grew up that they were people to evangelize. And if they became Christians, they left the church. And then through being working overseas, working with other people from different cultures, my, my worldview was challenged just like those circumcised Jewish Christians. And I realized that God was bigger than my theology. I realized that God who created me couldn't be put under a microscope. It didn't mean I was wrong. It just meant that I didn't have all of the truth. Because to have all of the truth is, is where we mostly want to be. Because then we're not wrong. And now we have, as Johnny raised last week, this whole issue around sexual orientation and same-sex marriage and all the other issues. Now, I'm not saying that as a church we should go with the flow of the secular age. That is not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that our doubt should invade heaven. That somehow we think, oh, well, there's all sorts of different religions. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, based on our theology, do we allow, allow first of all, room for doubt? Just maybe we need to look at that thing again. Do we feel that only we have the truth? Because that means I'm right and they're wrong. Do we believe that theology can change? Do we accept light from any quarter? If we believe as, the Roman, as we're taught in Romans that God doesn't leave himself without a witness. Have we room for grey in what is increasingly a binary world? Even look at politics. Look at Afghanistan. You know, we were right, they were wrong. Instead of saying, this is much more messy. We've been trying to look at a centenary here, uh, a, sorry, a decade of uh, anniversaries here, of centenaries and others. And we're always saying, if that way and that thing happened on that day is interpreted that way, then my understanding's wrong. No, it's not. We're both looking at things from different perspectives. When do we get that into the church? When will we allow space, safe space for people to ask questions? where they're not feeling they're unorthodox or need to be judged. I have friends who have left the established church because they have serious questions around how we're dealing with some of the big issues today, from the environment to sexual orientation to women's ministry. And they say, I cannot, I cannot ask questions because when I'm asking questions, I'm condemned as a heretic. And are we willing to be surprised by God? Can I maybe suggest one or two ways in which we might go about engaging with this? white noise. The power of experience, for me being overseas and working with people from other traditions and hearing their experiences, for an African Christian to say to me, you know that story of the Good Samaritan? Where you hire the two people walking on the other side and then Superman, the, the Samaritan comes in, your church comes in and they save the rebel. No, how I see that as an African is that you're the two people who walked on the other side of the road and I'm the person lying in the gutter that you left. 1979, my worldview was flipped. 
Same parable, totally different life experience, totally different application. Were they right and I'm wrong? No. We both saw things differently and we had to hold them in tension. The power of listening, the power of testimony. Why do we have to say the Bible says, the Christian view is, instead of actually maybe offering, I believe that, or the traditional view has been, they may sound marginally different, but they open up the possibility. Because if you say the Bible says, and I go, well, I see it differently, automatically I'm wrong. But if I say my view of the Bible is, or I interpret the Bible to say, then there's room for engagement. Can you see the difference there? It's not just playing around the margins. It's actually engaging in the area of gray. It's moving into the white noise, the static, to try to say, maybe I can make sense of all of this. Where do we allow safe places to engage with difference of serious issues? And are we willing to admit we don't know everything? And if we lead with inclusivity as the main driver, because God's love knows no boundaries, Jesus died for everyone in John 3.16, for the cosmos in Greek, the world. And the cosmos in Greek always means the fallen world. He didn't die for nice people, although he died for them too, but not just for them. Let me finish with this, and it's a beautiful quote by Rick Warren. I think all of this, if you're looking for a key, it's love. Love pays attention. Love listens to the fears and the doubts of others and creates, sorry, and treats them with respect. Love accept, accepts others the way Jesus accepts you. Not judgment. Not leading with a binary, I'm right, you're wrong. Not saying, prove your adequacy. Prove that I should include you. It's not my right to exclude anyone. So I think for me today, it is about how can we be a church that is true to our fundamental beliefs and understandings and experiences and yet not allow that to say there's certain rules that apply before you can enter this place. And certainly if we're talking about the difficulties out there, the world needs a Christian voice. The problem is the one that hears often is the one that becomes my view's right and your rules wrong. In other words, it's the argument rather than the discussion. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you just that you're a God who surprises us. You're a God of the static, a God of the white noise. And it's in that static and white noise that we discern the peacefulness, the shalom that comes when we walk with you. So help us to be people who are led by you. Help us to be people who listen rather than act and people who are willing to discuss rather than argue. Help us to be an inclusive church here. And that doesn't mean throwing away laws and ideas and concepts. It doesn't mean the lowest common denominator. But let's just listen to people's life stories and realize, realize that we can have light from all quarters. Thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to respond now in the same way as those circumcised Jewish Christians did in praise. Because when you hear the testimony from Scripture, when they heard what Peter said, he's right, let's praise God. And the words of this wonderful hymn, Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. Thank you for the cross, Lord.